Well, Risen King Church, happy anniversary. Uh, first Sunday in July, back 2019, four years ago, is when we uh, met for the first time as Risen King Church and not as Valley Campus of Randolph Street. So, um, thankful for that. Um, we're going to be breaking from Ephesians. Nope, we haven't been in Ephesians. That's where we're going today. I'm at maybe 63% today. We'll just, it'll be interesting. Uh, Keith's ready to, to step up if I fall over. Who knows what the Lord has for us today, but taking a break from Genesis, that's where we've been. Um, just for the summer, to often just do a summer series, <clears throat> take a break. We moved through, if you were not here, we've, from January through last week through June, we moved from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, we'll pick back up in either late August or early September, Lord willing, with Genesis 12, start moving our way through those stories. But uh, for the summer, just all the different things that are taking place, wanting to do a different series. And it's good to be starting this on an anniversary Sunday for Risen King Church. Uh, We want to take some time to consider the question, what is the church? Or who are we as a church? Um... And as of right now, we're planning about six or seven sermons, I think, to help provide some answers to those questions that we pray will be helpful for us, not just a church doctrine course, but um, what are we recipients of, and then what flows out from that, Uh, even just in writing down some of the the answers to that question for Keith or for myself to, to preach through, I'm eager to dig in onto that, eager for those truths to settle into to my heart. And so throughout this short series, we want to emphasize what God has done for us or on our behalf, and also what God is doing through us, and because there are vertical and horizontal elements of being the church. First, to get one big point out of the way, a church uh, is not a building. I think we've said that before. Um, when we find the word first used in the, in the New Testament, it's talking about a gathering of people. That's what church means. Like an assembly, it's not always a religious gathering. It can just be a a gathering for any purpose. But most often when it's used in the Bible, it is a religious gathering. And then most frequently then with that uh, would be a gathering of of worshipers for for God, those who are gathered to worship Jesus together. So I think that's a very simple definition that we could give, that a church is a group of people who gather to worship Jesus together. I think that's, I don't know that you could get a whole lot simpler to that when you You keep that in mind as you come to that word in the New Testament. You're pretty close. There's more than that. There's a lot we could talk about. In Acts, we read of the gospel spreading and people being added to the church. There's a phrase that we find a few different times. Earlier in Acts, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Acts, but there's this this progression of, uh, I don't even know if it's just concentric circles, but there's this growing and then expanding that happens across the course of Acts. And so earlier in Acts, uh, the church, or the being added to the church, meant um, the followers of Jesus who live in Jerusalem. And then the gospel spreads outside of Jerusalem to, to other places, to other Gentile nations, to other Gentile cities. And we read of churches being formed in those places as well. For example, in Acts chapter 11, we read of Persecuted believers being scattered from Jerusalem to places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. In Antioch, that's kind of the second big city over the course of Acts. Jerusalem is the first big city, and Antioch is the second most important city that's talked about. And in Antioch, Luke writes that the hand of the Lord was was with those who went to Antioch to spread the gospel. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And it says a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church in Antioch. So all of a sudden, we, we, right, it had referred to Jerusalem. Now we see that the same word used for a gathering of Jesus' followers in Antioch. 
met with a church in Antioch and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The Holy Spirit eventually leads the church in Antioch to send Paul and Barnabas as evangelists or missionaries to make disciples in other unreached cities. They go on these three uh, missionary, Paul goes on these three missionary journeys, and we read about different companions that go with him. And this first, it's Paul and Barnabas going together. The Holy Spirit blesses their efforts. New churches are started in a number of places. Acts 14 says that they strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And this pattern continues throughout Acts and beyond. And then that, that desire for the disciples who have gathered in specific locations, in churches, to gather, to worship Jesus together, those churches with biblical leadership, Right, the rest of the New Testament then really is dedicated to letters written to these churches scattered around the Roman Empire or to individual ministers who have gone from places to encourage or serve there in those churches. And here's how Paul refers to the members of these churches in some of his letters. When he writes to Rome, he, he opens up, he introduces himself, and then he says, Romans 1.7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's Paul's description of the church, the gathering of Jesus' followers in the city of Rome. When he writes to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of, their, of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, To the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Did you catch the word or, or the description or the title that was shared in all three of those introductions? Did you catch the common word? Saints. Saints. Holy ones. Sanctified ones. Those who have been and are being made holy. That's the first answer that we need to have clearly in our minds. What is the church? Or who are we as a church? We are saints. Of course, the Christians in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus or Hurricane weren't always saints. And sainthood is not determined by a council after death. Because these are written to living people. Living people that are just like us. They were sinful unbelievers when they first came across the gospel, just as we were sinful unbelievers. And Paul, in, to Rome, to Corinth, to Ephesus, he confronts a number of sinful issues in each of those three letters. And in all of his letters, two churches filled with saints, made up of saints, he still has to confront sinful issues. But the reality of our past sinfulness is exactly what makes this title of saints that much more astounding and important. Apparently, the church is holy, not by itself, but by intervention, by divine intervention. You do not make yourself a saint. You are made a saint, or you are not a saint. Thankfully, Paul spells out what this divine intervention involved as he continues writing to the Ephesians. That's why I said Ephesians, this is a book that was in my head. If you could turn there, Ephesians chapter 1. And after Paul introduces himself, gives a blessing, very standard kind of letter stuff. I don't know if you've noticed that pattern, but that's what Paul does in his letters. He says, this, this is who it's from, Paul, an apostle, right? This is who it's to, the saints who are in Ephesus. He gives a blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he dives in on this sentence if my memory of Greek classes is, is fresh, uh, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in, in Greek. It's a lot more than that in English because we can't, we can't do that. Try it. See if you could parse that. If you like diagramming, figure that one out. One long statement of praise stretching from verse 3 to verse 14. Because before we consider anything else related to who are we as a church, we really need to understand and embrace what God has done for us. If our definition doesn't start with that, we've missed something. 
We can't, we can't jump to what are we to do if we don't know who we are, which has to do with what God has done for us. It must flow in that direction. What has God done? Who has God made us to be? And now what? Right? So Paul wants to praise God specifically and, and then instruct us in his praise of God. That's why he writes it down. How each person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each person of the Trinity is actively involved in our transformation from sinners to saints. Because that transformation is what's necessary. And really, that's why we gather here. Because we recognize that we fall short of the Psalm 15 ideal, even though it's fairly simple that Robbie walked us through at the beginning of our gathering. And then we, we look at those like, oh, you know, that person's better than me, right? Anne. Oh, she was a saint, right? She was a saint, but she wasn't a saint automatically. Anne was a saint by divine intervention. And the same thing is true of us. If you are in Christ part of his church. You are a saint by divine intervention because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have acted on your behalf to transform you, right? to make you into a, a Trinitarian gospel project. Um, and I think of God's redemptive work in us try to understand why or how it displays about God. Um, I think I've used this illustration before. Forgive me if I have, but uh, like I like building things, right? taking raw materials and trying to produce something out of it. Uh, probably never quite turns out as good as, as I want it to. Um, then you look at it and be like, oh, that's impressive. Like, look, look what he made with these raw materials. Uh, that's one level of skill, right? And I've been to... Uh, Worked for a company that worked for Ford up in Detroit. Got to go to the F-150 factory and see them, you know, bring in all these raw materials and bend and clamp and press and all these different things to form these amazing trucks. That's, that's an amazing process, right? To be able to take these raw materials, to form them into something else. But, but like, what about the scrapyard guys? Right? Like, take the raw materials and build something cool out, out of materials that you shape and form initially, that's impressive. But what about when you take a, a destroyed, ruined scrap heap and can somehow form that into something better than it was before it was ruined? Like, do you see the difference? Like building a car from, from undamaged raw materials or rebuilding a car from a, a flaming pile of rubble? Like we could spend a whole series on how terrible we are as sinners. Or we're just going to assume that. Paul gets to that in Ephesians chapter 2. That's not one of the things that we're going to really focus on. But we just, we know that that's the case. Right? We think other people have accomplished something or reached something that we haven't reached. No, we, we all start on that level playing field of the fact that we're sinners, which makes it amazing that we've been transformed from, from ruined rubble into saints. You, if you're in Christ, are a saint now. Because God has been at work at you. Paul begins with God, the Father, planning our salvation, I think we could say. It's Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Please follow along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our transformation into saints starts with God the Father planning our salvation. Bless God who has blessed us. The Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Note, it does not say that he rewards us for our good behavior with these blessings. Right? To bless is not to pay back. 
That's not what that means. Right? Blessing has to do with, with a gifting, with a graciousness. He's gracious to us and we do not deserve it. And if it's deserved, it's no longer grace. You do work for me and I pay you. I can't call that a gift. Right? That's just a transaction. That's fine. Much of life happens that way. But that's not graciousness. That's not blessing. If you do nothing for me, right, then I'm generous. But then as we think about God, it's not just, oh, well, we did, did we do something to repay him? Or did we do nothing and he's just acted upon us? No, we actually have acted contrary to his will. And he's, acted, he's given us contrary to what we deserve. His mercy and grace tied up with those type of things. As we understand who we are and what we deserve, then we think about how God has treated us, that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like That must just be a, a response of a profound grace from God. Right, and the distance between that, the, the distance of that grace is really from what we deserve to what we receive. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin, and we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, look, Fred, Fred prayed for me this morning, prayed for us, that we would grasp these things and even see that one of these spiritual, bless, uh, spiritual blessings that we have, even in the fellowship of the body, he didn't know that I was preaching this text this morning, and yet it was on his mind. I wonder if it's on our minds and those type of things. But it's just like, if you were to try to give, what is this kind of a definition? It's like, I really, I have very little idea. What is, what is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? What does that mean? And it's like, whatever you think it means, it means a whole lot more than that. And we'll touch base on that. We'll touch on that a little bit more because the same idea hops through the rest of this passage. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, forever. Everything that he could give you, everything that the God who created all things could give you, he has. It is yours. You are the recipient of it because you are in him. And how did, like, what? Like, well, how, did, how do we get from who, who we should be and what we should receive to that? Well, it does, again, begin with God the Father planning out this salvation that we received, this, this transformation into sainthood. Verse 4, even as he blessed us, even as it's aligned with the fact that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there's a time aspect of this, right? It didn't happen in time. It happened before time. It happened before Genesis 1. It's part of the eternal plan of God to choose those that he would transform into saints. And that's a remarkable thing when you think about who God knew us to be, not those who would do good things on our own, but those who were entirely given over to sinfulness. Like walking through the junkyard and seeing the destruction, I mean, like this one I'm going to rescue, this one I'm going to rescue, this one I'm going to rescue. So, but none of them deserved it. And that could be a difficult doctrine to try to grasp. This is like, let's just think of the opposite. Are, are you somehow more deserving of grace than someone else? Like, would you really claim that? And I know that you wouldn't, because no one who has come to Christ would ever be like, you know what? Yeah, it makes sense that God chose me. And so you may, may, may struggle somewhat with that wording of, yes, I'm talking about election, right? That God freely chose undeserving sinners to rescue from the damnation that they deserved, Right? That is what this text is talking about, along with a number of other texts. I really do believe that's very clear in Scripture. Right? But nobody that would walk into that would be like, yep, no, I would have chosen me too. It's like, knowing who I am with Christ, I still wouldn't choose me. But God did. Because he is gracious. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He, he, he decided that he would enter into a relationship with us. He, he picked us for a goal. He's like, I have a purpose for this one. And he tells us what the purpose is. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, saints. Holy and blameless before him. That Trinitarian gospel project. Right? This one, look and see what I'm going to make this one. To be. This one will be holy and blameless before me, and I will see it through. I will make this happen. That's what God said before the foundation of the world. The Father has chosen us in Christ. See, these type of words sometimes are, are um, thought of in, in some sort of like cold, aloof doctrinal 
category, election, right? So, so I don't have a problem with the term or the concept. I hope that's really clear. I, I believe that. We, we, uh, if you remember here, you, we've, we've taught through that, that that's something that we see in Scripture, like, this, like from this passage. Um, but th- those type of words are profoundly personal. Like they're profoundly, it's a profoundly warm concept, not an intellectually cold concept. Right? It, it overlaps with these ideas of, of knowing, right? of entering into a personal relationship. It's like, I will be your, your God. You will be my people. I will be your father. You will be my son or my daughter. I will be your husband. You will be my bride. Right? You will be part of my, I'm going to graft you onto the vine. I'm going to, I'm going to sow you on, transplant you onto the body that I'm building. We have to see the warmth of those type of things, to become before him and be able to be worthy before him, right? Those who are, who are unworthy, standing at the bottom of that holy hill, looking at the list that's posted of who can ascend and being like, I don't meet any of these qualifications. And God's saying, you don't now, but you will, because I will make you one who can ascend my holy hill and dwell in my presence now and forever. Accomplishing this, we see comes from God's love for us. Verse four into verse five. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Lovingly predestined, right? So there there it is again, election and predestination, those words that that you either only want to talk about or you maybe don't want to talk about. Uh, But they're both here in scripture and they're overlap. But again, the warmth of love from that, in love he predestined us, decided beforehand that there was going to be a goal, there was going to be a destiny or a destination of adoption. Lovingly predestined us for adoption to himself. Right, the king walking into, I don't know, a prison full of his enemies to be like, yep, you're going to be my son. Yep, you're going to be my daughter. God the Father transforming us. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This was in accordance, according to the purpose of his will. And it is to the praise of his glorious grace and all of these type of things. And the blessing that we have in Christ that comes from God acting when we don't deserve it to choose us and to predestine us to, this, to be these saints and these sons and daughters. And in all of this, God the Father has displayed to us his praiseworthy, glorious grace, which is ours in the Beloved in his dearly loved son. That, that grace is yours in Christ and only through Christ, but entirely through Christ. God the Father planning our salvation. That's how we could be transformed from sinners truly into saints, which leads us to the second section. He uses that idea of Christ or the beloved as a, as a transition into verse seven. So we see first, we saw God the Father Planning our salvation, we see God the Son providing our salvation. Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. Follow along, pick up where I left off. So in the beloved, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory." God the Son has provided our salvation, and he starts off by talking about the fact that Jesus has purchased redemption for us with his own blood. The idea of redemption can have kind of a couple different nuances to it, where it can be somebody who's enslaved and a price being paid so that their debt, right, is paid, and then they are no longer enslaved. And so that's kind of like half of the definition as the payment of, of, a, of a slave's ransom so that they are no longer enslaved. That, that's half of it. But then there's the other half of it uh, where it's not like, where it's a powerful deliverance. 
So the, the typical, right, the, um, the prototype or stereotypical example of slavery in Scripture that we need to be delivered from is the slavery of the Israelites to the Egyptians. And God, in rescuing them from that, uses the idea, the word, of redemption. That God redeemed them from that. And so if we only have that slave market idea, then we would have God coming and paying a debt that the Israelites owed to the Egyptians to buy them out of slavery. But you know the story, right? Is that what happened? It's not what happened. Right? God didn't pay the Egyptians. God took from the Egyptians and crushed them to rescue his, slavery, to his, his people from slavery. It's not just going to the market to then buy them out of what they deserve. They actually didn't deserve to be in slavery. Right? It's actually God coming and kicking down the door, right? Uh, Jason borning the slave master, and then grabbing his people and carrying them out. Right? So it's, there's a powerful deliverance, but there is a cost that's, that's paid. And so that's, I think that's just been the definition that I've always returned to when it comes to, to redemption. It's a powerful deliverance, but it's purchased at a cost. Right? There's just the two sides of that. Right? The, Egyptian, the Israelites did not deserve to be in slavery to the Egyptians. We do deserve the slavery that we have to sin and to Satan. But there's no price that has to be paid to Satan because he's the Egyptians in this type of thing. Right? So God doesn't owe Satan anything. Matter of fact, the debt that we have is paid to God. So we have a powerful deliverance from an evil slave master through a debt paid to a righteous king. So we have a powerful conquering in redemption, but we have a price paid. And what is the debt? The debt is life. So what was the payment? It was Christ's life. Seen in the shedding of Christ's blood. We have redemption. We have powerful deliverance at a cost from sin, from slavery to sin, from slavery to Satan, and from the punishment of God's wrath. We are rescued out from that because Jesus died on the cross for us. You are not a saint because you do saint-like things. You are a saint because you have been rescued from slavery and set into a new path, right? It's a transformation that was purchased by Jesus on the cross. And in that, we see that very need. It wasn't just, unless we thought that it was some aspect of, of innocence, right? If we just said, oh, we have redemption through his blood, we could think like, oh, yeah, poor me, Right, born into bad circumstances that I needed to be rescued from, like it, we could start to delusionally think of that, that we deserve to be saints, but things were acting against us. But Paul knocks that down. We have redemption through his blood. And it's like, well, Paul, what is that redemption? What does he say? The redemption that we have through his blood includes or is involved with the forgiveness of our trespasses, our boundary crossing, right? our, our law breaking, our sin, our disobedience. The, the lack of love like we talked about from 1 Corinthians 13. That which we ought to be because of what, how God has treated us that we have fallen short of. We have forgiveness for these trespasses. Forgiveness that is purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. Have you ever, other than by God, have you ever been like really well forgiven? Like there's the kind of come to, come to terms of it's like, well, I did, but, but you did, but yeah. And you kind of like work to that agreement with your spouse or your friend and kind of like, sure, I did wrong, you did wrong, and we're all a little bit wrong, and we're not going to fight about it anymore, and let's just, let's, let's hug and be friends, right? Like that happens, and, and sometimes you, you feel good about yourself in being forgiving, uh, and, and you feel good about them because they forgave you too, Right, these type of mutual things, um, but if you had the other, right, like all the arguments that you made about like what other other things cost the conflict between you and that person that you really come to recognize actually it had nothing to do with them, that it was just you, right? There, there's just no no fault, no blame, and just owning it, and just laying yourself down to be like, yeah, hundred percent me. Right? which is just really always what we should be doing when we are asking for forgiveness. Otherwise, you're negotiating. It's not the same thing. But have you laid down like all excuses to just, just really throw yourself at their mercy, ask for forgiveness, and then receive that? Just a real free forgiveness. 
that you just know, like, this should, there, this should remain between our relationship forever. There's really no reason that it shouldn't. And yet the relationship is restored. And just that sense of, of love that comes from those type of things, like, this is amazing. Um, a slave owed his king a, what, was it 20,000 talents, 1,000 talents, 100,000 talents, doesn't matter. Let's go a, a million dollars, right? He says, well, pay. I can't pay. Well, then you're going to go to debtor's prison, right? Your, your life is essentially over. You're going to be enslaved forever for this. Like, uh, if you'll have mercy on me, I'll, I'll, I'll pay it all back to you. And the king said, right, I will have mercy on you, but, but not so that you can pay me back, right? It's, it's unpayable, but I just forgive those type of things. Right? That's, the, that's the extent of forgiveness that we've received. And then you know where that story goes, though, right? Ah, oh, that we would really understand the nature of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, full and free. And if we were to receive these things, right, uh, undeserving aspect that God would plan salvation for us and and the, the nature of our sinfulness that nothing should be provided for us, nothing should be provided in relation to our, our salvation. Oh, how it would change us then to know what it means that we are saints. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Do you have the forgiveness of your trespasses? Are you truly certain of that? Man, we can just skip over these things so often. Just come back to that basic truth are you forgiven of your sins? You have the sins. Are you forgiven? Have you, have you rejoiced in that recently? God the Son has lavished his rich grace on us. What a word that is. This redemption and this forgiveness is not because we deserve it or because we would eventually be able to pay back or because eventually we would believe or do something on his behalf and prove ourselves to be worthy. That's all ridiculous. But this redemption and this forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. Grace which is lavished upon us. Just, just poured out. Um, like sometimes you're, you're stingy. Are you stingy people? You stingy with stuff? Sometimes I'm stingy with stuff. And then sometimes like, you know what? I don't want to be stingy with this stuff. I'm just like, just going to just start pouring it out. Um, I don't know why I always come back to that whipped cream. At, was it at least, was it at your, your birthday party? Kind of freaked out all of our friends a couple years ago. Had cheesecake, had whipped cream, had a bunch of whipped cream. And so they would be like, you want whipped cream? I give them whipped cream. So you, know, you expect like that little bit of whipped cream. But then, because I'm obnoxious, uh, like I just, just made this mountain of whipped cream. But it's like their eyes just get bigger and bigger. It's like, what, what was I doing? I was lavishing whipped cream on them and giving them diabetes. But <laughs> illustrations fall apart. But it's, it's kind of like, well, how much are you going to give? Like, when's it going to run up? Like, how, how many times am I going to come to you, Lord, and you're going to continue to forgive me? Like, am I only required to forgive seven times because we would expect that God's only going to forgive us to a certain amount of time, but yet every time that we come back to seek forgiveness for the same sins that we were sorry for and said we would never do again, and yet we confess, if we confess our sins, he is just faithful every single time to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it just happens over and over and over over and over and over again. Whatever you did yesterday that you did every day of the last year that you came and confessed and repented, you received forgiveness. And when you do it today and make that same confession, the forgiveness is still available. Purchased by Jesus on the cross. That is lavished grace. Not sprinkled, not, not, not meted out according to a very precise percentage, but just lavished on you. Just dumped Dumpster load, that's a terrible, that's not what I meant. What's a better word for that? My, something good that's as big as a dumpster. The dump truck. Dump truck was what I was going for. Dumpster, dump truck. I'm on medication. Dump trucks cleaned out. Very, very pristine dump trucks of grace that are lavished on us. And it's interesting how he explains this to us as well. What, what are some of the ways? What's, how do we see that lavish grace according to his riches? Right? Because that's true too. Right? The lavishness of something really does depend. If you, if you have very little and you give me a meal, that's lavish. 
It's like if you have a hard time feeding your, your own family and you provide for a guest, you've been lavish to them. But Christ doesn't come from a small supply. Right? He comes from riches. And that's how it can be like a lavish outpouring, extravagantly granted to us in his grace. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. God the Son lavishes rich grace on us, and he does so by bringing us into the wise counsel of his mysterious will. Like one of, the, one of the many ways in which he is pouring this out on us, he's like, let me tell you what's happening. Come here. Let me, let me, let me pull back the curtain a little bit. Let me show you what's, what's really going on. There's, there's what you can see, and then there's what's really happening. And let me show you. Let me bring you into my counsel, my mysterious will, that which hasn't been revealed, that which seems to be a secret, sometimes such a good secret that you can't even see it working, like Iran. You can look and read about the news, and then you can hear these undercurrents. It's kind of like, you know what? The church is growing. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the church of Jesus Christ in Iran because Jesus said it wouldn't. So his mysterious will is still in effect and marching forward triumphantly. God's purpose, God's plan for the fullness of time, foundation of the world, that eternity past, fullness of time is the consummation of all things. And what is that plan? That everything be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And this throws me to Colossians chapter 1, right? This is like Christ who is the firstborn over the old creation and Christ who's the firstborn of the new creation and how that, that hymn climaxes. He's going to reconcile all things to himself. Everything will be in its proper place in subjection to Jesus when all is said and done. And you're on the right side of that as a saint. Not in a right place as deserving the judgment, receiving the judgment that you should receive, but the right place of reigning with him. And he has given us these, he's also secure, excuse me, then we get into verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. God's beloved son has secured an inheritance for us to share with him. And that reminds me again of that verse 3. The blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? That's the inheritance that we have promised to receive. The inheritance which is Christ's, which he shares with those who are his. So it's like, well, wait, what is everything? Every spiritual blessing? It's, it's everything. Everything that by right belongs to Christ, by grace belongs to his people. That's the inheritance that you have to receive. And he has given us these promises so that we would hope in Christ. In him, we, we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined, not just to adoption, although adoption and inheritance obviously come together really, really nicely on those type of things, but we're predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? That, that destiny, that destination determined beforehand is that like, we would be at a part of this. We would be a part of this plan that God is fulfilling in Christ and that we would receive an inheritance. Again, that all of the glory that Christ receives, we will share in it. That's the place that God decided you would be a part of as he transforms you into his saint, And he has given us all of these promises of inheritance, of Christ's victory, of redemption and forgiveness, right? Of what his will is and the counsel that is being worked out. I don't know why I ever trust that thing. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you remember what hope means? It's not a wish, it's a waiting. There's a difference between wishing for something and waiting for something. There's a confidence that comes with only one of those. Hope, biblically, is not crossing your fingers, holding your breath, longing for a victory of a team that's very unlikely to win. Right? I, uh, I borrowed a friend's car in college uh, with permission and drove it recklessly on some back roads in Wisconsin without permission uh, and we wrecked it. Uh, I wasn't driving, but I was responsible. And um, there were a lot of cool things that the Lord did to the Bible college that we worked at and, and people from churches back home sending funds. 
And so they're kind of always telling us, hey, pray for, pray for money uh, to come in to help pay your bills, right? The Lord provides in these things, and it builds faith. It builds hopes. Like, oh, a beautiful thing. And so I remember getting on my knees uh, outside of the mailroom with my three buddies that we had wrecked this car uh, to pray that the Lord would provide the funds needed for the repair. And then we went in faith to open up our mailboxes, and there was nothing, right? And I think it was the Lord being like, hey, you're morons. Uh, I'm not solving this one for you. It's like, you got to work to pay your, your bills, right? Uh, and, and we did, and we paid that back and made those repairs. But that was that wish, right? Like, ah, like, maybe, maybe somebody will send me the $1,000 that I need to repair from this. It's kind of like, no, no, that's, that's, that's not how it works, right? It's like, sometimes the Lord does work that way. Uh, and, and he is gracious to idiots, uh, like I was, right? And he's, he's done that a number of times in my life, just not that time. Uh, but that's not what faith and hope are. It's like, oh, maybe Jesus will do something really nice for me, but I'm not sure. Let me hold my breath. It's not hope. It's not faith, right? Hoping is the confidence that he's promised something and we're just waiting for it to come. Well, he said this and he's reliable, so it's going to happen. That's hope. We hope in Christ, which means we're looking and we're, we're waiting, right? Just like, I wonder, you know, today? It's like, when, when will the promises be fulfilled? Not will the promises be fulfilled? When will the promises be fulfilled? And we hope in Christ, and they were the first to hope in Christ. Then we are, we are not the first, but we are, we are among those who hope in Christ. And all these things build up, and all these promises, so we would hope in Christ, longing for him to come and fulfill his promises. And as we wait with hope, we exist as a church, as saints who were and still sin, right? At the same time, sinners and saints we exist for the praise of his glory, God's glory, through the Son. Do you hear the echo of that? To the praise of his glorious grace in verse 6. To the praise of his glory in verse 12. So we've seen the Father planning and, God, and the Son providing, and then we see the, the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, promising our salvation. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also... When you heard, of the, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In verse 13, we see the timeless plan of God for us enter into the timeline of our lives. Every Christian, every member of a church, every saint can say, like this text says, I heard the word of truth the gospel of my salvation, and I believed in Christ. As Paul would say elsewhere, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. But we recognize, as Paul recognizes, not all who hear believe, right? And perhaps the first time or the first hundred times or the first thousand times that you heard the word of truth, you did not believe, but at some point, if you were in Christ, you heard the word of truth and you believed. Right? You went from not hoping to hoping. So what was the difference in you that time that you heard and believed? It was the Holy Spirit at work in you. That is the difference maker. By his powerful working, you truly, spiritually heard the word of truth that you had been deaf to in your sin. And you truly saw the gospel of your salvation in Christ alone that you had been blind to in your sin. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers lest they should see the glory of God and the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. But then that veil is just ripped off and all of a sudden eyes are opened. Like Saul had those scales just drop from his eyes. It's kind of like, oh, that's who I was persecuting? It's like, of course Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. Of course he's the only savior for sinners. And now he's my savior. Right? Paul would say, I, I heard, but I was deaf. Like, I, I saw, but I was blind. Right? I was dead. It's like, but now I hear. Now I see. Now I'm alive. I believe. Now I've heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I've believed in Christ that is by the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit that you are alive spiritually rather than dead. And Paul's point here in Ephesians is that the Holy Spirit does not just bring us to spiritual life. He keeps us. It isn't just that he provides us with a little bit of help or a lot of help. It is his work that keeps us. 
right? It's, we can't do anything without help, so we do anything. Like, he is our helper. And not just an assistant that comes alongside, but like the one who accomplishes the work. He keeps us, and Paul communicates that, that keeping, not just starting, but keeping by saying that the Holy Spirit seals us. I think this is another thing that we've talked about before, this image in reference to the sacraments as, as signs and seals. A seal is, is pointing to a ring or a stamp, makes a very specific impression into hot wax. Uh, and when a king would affix his seal to a letter or a law or a proclamation, it meant that the contents of that letter were guaranteed by the power and authority of the king. Right? It's like his signature on it, which makes it entirely binding. To make this very concrete, is how does this relate to us? When you trusted in Christ, God, as it were, wrote out a certificate of pardon with your name on it. Of course, from verse 4, it actually took a certificate that already had your name on it from before the foundation of the world, but uh, wrote a certificate of pardon with your name on it, rolled it up, and sealed it or sealed you with the Holy Spirit. I think that's what uh, Bunyan was trying to uh, communicate in Pilgrim's Progress when he, he, they carry that scroll of entrance into the kingdom. You remember that image? Right? He, he loses his scroll. He has to go back. He has to find the scroll. That's not works, right? That's this. I think that's this assurance of pardon stamped by the king with his name on it that he could go and be like, I'm in Christ. Right? I'm sealed by your Holy Spirit. Your salvation is promised. And you can be assured of that promise by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can rest in Christ that just as your salvation was not your own doing, it is also not in your own keeping. You are being kept by the Holy Spirit who has sealed you with the stamp of God's eternal guarantee. Spurgeon, I think, right? If I could do anything to lose my salvation, I would. <laughs> right? Gospel preacher, profound uh, fruit bearing of that. Just recognize it's like, I've got nothing. And then John 10, right? Kept the Father's, kept in Christ's hand, kept in the Father's hand, kept by the Holy Spirit. To him who was able to keep you from stumbling to present you faultless before the throne, right, Jude? And the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of Christ's promises to us. He promised in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit will come. He promised in John 14, the Holy Spirit will come, 14, 15, and 16. I don't know what your experience has been with promises in your life. Whenever a promise is broken, it makes us doubt that future promises will be kept. Uh, whenever a promise is kept, though, it should give us confidence that no future promises will be broken. Right? Distrust breeds distrust, and trust should breed trust. So many times we're only given to the negative side of that, but we ought to be mindful of the positive side of that as well. And so it is with God. Has he ever broken a single promise to his people? Not rhetorical. Has God ever broken a single promise to his people. No, he has not. Have all of his promises been fulfilled yet? No, they haven't. But they all find their yes and their amen in Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So we remind ourselves to wait for Christ to fulfill all of the not yet fulfilled promises, like keeping us from stumbling, like his return to take us to himself. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, he says, of our inheritance, the inheritance which is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, the inheritance which is ours in Christ, that in him we have obtained this. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, or it could be the down payment of our inheritance while we wait to receive our inheritance in its entirety. I admitted at the beginning, I don't know exactly all that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places means, Right? What is included in everything like that? What is a spiritual blessing? We can only kind of think about physical blessings. It's kind of hard for us to grasp that. But even though we might not know exactly what that means, God, the Holy Spirit, 
bringing us into a spiritually alive relationship with God, growing us in that relationship, and keeping us secure in him throughout our lives here on earth, all of that is just a small percentage of what is waiting for us in God's presence. I think we, I think, I know I, I think we, grasp very little of what is actually being accomplished in us constantly by the Holy Spirit. Right? Like we, we, don't, we don't believe without him. We don't repent without him. We don't understand scripture without him. Right? We don't relate to God. We don't have a relationship with Christ without the Spirit. We don't understand his love. We don't love other people. All of that is the life, which is the Spirit in us. <clears throat> so everything that you've ever understood or enjoyed about Christianity is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's just a fraction of what is waiting for you. Like the greatest joy and gratitude for the grace of God and salvation through Christ is just, it doesn't give us a percentage. Let's say 10%. I don't know. Whatever a good down payment is of an inheritance. But it's also that guarantee that you got this much because there's more and it's coming. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. What no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And for the third and final time, Paul refers, re- returns to his refrain, the short chorus of this long sentence of praise to the praise of his glory seen in the Holy Spirit. I think this text is very clear on two things, that God has been gracious to us and that his grace to us is glorious. The praise of his glory, the praise of his grace, the praise of his glorious grace. He has transformed us from sinners into saints, taking that that which we do not deserve and never treating us according to what we deserve, lavished grace on us through Christ, that we are now holy, now holy ones who stand blameless before his presence, clothed and covered in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of our Savior Jesus. Who are we as a church? This is who we are as a church, those who are the recipients of this kind of grace. We just praise for that. We, we, We just receive that. It's just true. All because he opened our eyes to see the glory of that message. And we've believed in his promises and we wait for it, right? It's, it's amazing what God has done for us. And if we can't, we, don't, we cannot start the definition of a church or have, have anything that flows out from that if we don't see, it's like we are the recipients of that kind of grace, right? A, a gospel project of the Trinity. <laughs> Saints. That's what God has made us to be by, by his plan and by his provision and by, by his promise, Let's, let's pray. You are, you are blessed, God. Um, we bless your name as Paul blessed your name um, for your graciousness to us. I'll give us hearts to grasp and to praise. Give us hearts to hope and long for being in your presence and receiving in Christ all of these spiritual blessings that are ours in him. And we'll come, we'll come to the table now. Uh, good time to come to the table, right? It's always a good time to come to the table. But this is what God has done for us. Um, and we look and we taste of what Christ has accomplished. So if, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're, you're welcome to come to this table. Uh, 